Lord, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, for you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we're moving on today to the city of Thyatira. Uh, I remember that because, you know, Thyatira, and uh, I have been picking out a tie each week that kind of matches. It's kind of hard when you're looking at your ties and thinking, okay, Thyatira, any old tie would do. But I chose this one today because it has to do with a small church that stayed built on a rock. I mean, if you could see the entire tie. But of all the seven churches that we are going to look at in this series, Thyatira was probably the least important. It was not what you would call a vacation spot. Uh, you would not go there on your honeymoon. Uh, and if you went there at all, you probably just passed through. And if you go to the next screen, you'll see, I put the map back up so you can kind of see where we've been thus far. We started in Ephesus, we went to Smyrna, then we went up to Pergamum, and now you notice we're kind of going back down, and we're at number four, Thyatira. You may notice that along the way, you see a lot of temples that are there, and each city had temples for a specific purpose. Now, to think about Thyatira, I decided to try to put it into some modern-day counterparts. You know, if you were thinking about Ephesus, for example, you'd probably think of someplace like Dallas. You know, kind of bold and brash with a, a, a lot of commerce and a whole lot of religion. Uh, for suffering Smyrna, uh, I was thinking of the city of Cairo in Egypt, where the Coptic Christians now are under assault uh, from the Muslim majority. For Pergamum, uh, the closest equivalent I could think of would be Washington, D.C., with its worldly power and all of its marble monuments. But then I was thinking, okay, what would you compare Thyatira to? And the town I came up with is Flint, Michigan. Flint, Michigan. See, uh, it's an old Union town. And Flint, Michigan is to Chicago as Thyatira was to Ephesus. The city was known for uh, making the purple. It was known for high-quality bronze used to produce some polished weapons that, that gleam like gold. And, uh, in fact, we read a little bit further as we're studying Acts on our Sunday morning Bible study. You get into Acts 16. You read about a lady whose name is Lydia. And Lydia was a dealer in purple cloth, and she was from Thyatira, and she met Paul in Philippi. Uh, economically, this town was dominated by what they called trade guilds, or what we would call today unions. It was a union town. Uh, but this was a union that mixed their trade with paganism and immorality. If you lived in Thyatira and you were a potter or a carpenter or a metal worker, you had to join uh, a trade guild and the trade guild met at one of those pagan temples. And along with the normal union business meeting, there was idol worship, there was rampant drunkenness and rampant sexual perversion. It was all one big package. You could not say, I want to work in this town and not be a part of one of their unions. And you could not say, okay, I'll be in one of your unions but I'd like to skip the drinking, the idol worship, and the sexual perversion. You had to go the whole nine yards. 
Now, it's kind of ironic, as we've been reading through this, that the church in the least important city should receive the longest message. Because, I guess, in God's eyes, there are really no small churches. In fact, you cannot find anything in the entire New Testament that would make you think that Jesus favors these so-called megachurches more than he does small churches. And even though these big churches, you know, even here in our country today, receive most of the publicity, by and large, believe it or not, most of the work of Jesus goes forward in churches with populations of 100 or less. This is not only true in America, it's true in churches around the world. Most of the churches in the world have less than 100 members in them. I want to share about five points with you today. We learn about Jesus. I think I put them all on one page. I didn't really give you an outline, but just kind of a, so you know how long the sermon's going to be, you'll know where I'm at, okay? <laughs> the, the first point is that Jesus knows the truth about the church. I don't know if that would scare you or not, that Jesus knows the church about First Lutheran. Now, the message begins with a description of Jesus. It says, this letter comes from the Son of God. And this is the only time in the whole book of Revelation where Jesus is called the Son of God. Now, in our pluralistic society today, this is a very divisive claim to make. Because, see, we believe that from eternity God has existed as what? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So to say that Jesus is the Son of God means that we worship him and we're truly worshiping God himself. So this is literally God speaking to this church in Thyatira. And this verse uh, really tells us we had better pay attention. It says the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. He's basically saying to these folks in Thyatira what a pilot sometimes says to his passengers, buckle up, baby, we're about to hit some turbulence here. Now, the second thing you want to think about here is that even though Jesus knows the truth about the church, he praises the good in the church. In many ways, Thyatira will be the very best of these seven churches we look at. He says, I know your deeds, I know your love, I know your faith, I know your service, I know your perseverance, and I know that you're now doing more than you have ever done before. Now, if you think about these churches we've been at so far, the church, this church kind of has the good works of Ephesus along with the love that Ephesus lacked. This church also had the perseverance that Smyrna showed. It had the good theology of the majority of the church at Pergamum. And Jesus asked that you're doing more now than you did at the first. Now, I don't think Jesus here means to command that they got a crowded church calendar. I don't think he just said, you know, when I first looked at you guys, you hardly had anything on your calendar. Now you've got all kinds of stuff. I don't think he's saying that at all. I think he means that this congregation was growing, not numerically, not necessarily financially, but they were growing spiritually. They were growing in the faith. They were growing in love. They were growing in hope. They were growing in such a way that they worshipped and served, and they actually were making some inroads with other people. Now, if we go back a few messages to Ephesus, Jesus said, you were once strong, 
but now you're getting weaker. To Thyatira, he says, you're good and you're getting better. Now, whatever else we can say about this church, the Lord clearly says that they were still making progress spiritually, advancing the gospel in a very unlikely place. I can't help but think of all sorts of churches around the world. You know, whether they're around the world or whether they're in the United States or whether they're in Texas or whether they are in Texarkana. Little churches that are growing spiritually, growing in faith, growing in love, growing in hope, and ever so slowly making inroads into the society. Could almost be a description of First Lutheran Church. Huh? If you disagree with me, I think you might agree. Well, let's take a look at the third thing. Jesus exposes the evil. He praises the good, but you know, we found, you know, but this I have against you. Now, this is coming here. And it's this high praise that Jesus gives to them that makes the kind of the rest of this rather unsettling. Somehow in the midst of their growing spiritually, they had allowed some ungodly woman to rise to a position of enormous spiritual influence. Let me read it again. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Now, when I just say the name Jezebel, do you all have a vague idea of what kind of a woman this is? And we've used that word Jezebel down through the ages. It's not... I don't know very many people today that would call their, their baby child Jezebel. Yeah, that's just not a name you're going to give to a girl because it has so many nasty connotations. Now, I think you guys are expecting a little girl. I just don't... Could you imagine the combination? I just think, Jezebel Christian. Whoa. Whoa. Ooh. That poor girl would have... More than three strikes against her whole life. It says, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food offered to idols. Now, the question is, who is this woman and how did she manage to rise to prominence in an otherwise excellent congregation? Now, I have no doubt that the Lord here is referring to a very actual person even though I think Jezebel is likely not her name, but it's probably an allusion to that Jezebel of the Old Testament. Now, you can read the whole story back in 1 Kings, chapter 16. I'm going to give you a very quick uh, paraphrase. Uh, Jezebel, in the Old Testament, was the daughter of a pagan king whose name was Ephbaal. And when she married, she married a guy named Ahab. And Ahab was king of Israel. And Jezebel exerted such an evil influence on her husband that the entire nation turned to Baal worship. Uh, and in fact, she had such a powerful influence on her husband that her husband, even in the Bible, is referred to as more evil than any other king who came before him. Uh, Jezebel has always been a symbol of of a kind of a seductive form of evil that not only allowed idolatry to happen, 
But she promoted it. And not only did she allow adultery and all sorts of other sexual kinds of stuff, but encouraged it and actually rewarded it. I mean, what was going on here was a very toxic mix. That believe me, it would destroy any church, it would destroy any nation. But the question still is, how could this woman get to the position of authority within a church that seems to be doing okay? Now, I think you can find a clue in the text by what she's referred to as. Did you catch? A prophetess. A prophetess. See, by claiming to speak for God, she gained gained credibility with a bunch of gullible, untaught Christians. And she was no doubt very slick with her presentation and very dangerous. See, with Jezebel in charge of your church, guess what? You had it all. You had salvation. You had Jesus. You had heaven. You had idol worship. You had friendship with the world. And you had guilt-free sex for all. Sound like a church some people might like, huh? And you could have it all under the guise of being a, quote, good Christian. I have no doubt that people packed the pews at Thyatira. I have no doubt that there were probably some people in the church at Thyatira, though, who also ridiculed people who were strong Bible teachers and strong Bible believers. See, it worked with the Jezebel in the Old Testament. It works for her namesake in Thyatira, and guess what? It still works in the churches today. Now, I'm just going to kind of pause here to issue a very solemn warning, and it's this. Be wary. Be very wary of anybody who identifies themselves as a prophet or prophetess. I'm just saying watch out for people who call themselves prophets or prophetesses. See, it's one thing to be a Bible teacher. It's one thing to be a pastor. But it is something else to claim that you have somehow received a special message from God. And anybody who takes that on themselves to say, I have received a special message from God, takes upon themselves a very fearful responsibility. Now, it's one thing for me to stand up here and say, God has said this, for example, in, in Romans chapter 8. But it's another thing to stand up and say, in this dream or in this vision that I received from the Almighty, I have this word. Now, I want you to know I'm not passing any judgment on any particular person. In fact, I have friends who would call themselves prophets. But I also know them to be godly people who don't speak anything that's against God's word. But there are many false prophets that are around today. I guess what I'm saying is, look, folks, we got the word of God. Why do we need anything else? Be very careful with people who claim to have something other than this. When I was at the seminary... And we would have chapel, and somebody would read the Word of God. The response of the congregation would be from Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, I think the pastor who read the Word of God would say, in many various ways, God has spoken of, of old uh, to his people through the prophets. 
And then the congregation would respond, but now in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. It's a reminder that God's word and what Jesus says about God's word is most important. But still, there's another question here. How could this woman be tolerated in in this nice church? I don't know. Could it be that she was related to the head pastor? I don't know. Uh, And that kind of supplied a cover, or she was the elder's wife? I don't know. Uh, Maybe the leaders feared that if they confronted her, it would split the church. Uh, Maybe they actually thought that by tolerating her, that she would just kind of go away. Or maybe they thought that it was actually a mark of grace to accept her in hopes that they might eventually win her to Jesus. It might be a combination of all of those. But whatever, this church that was doing better than it did before was sinning by not dealing with this blatant sin. It's frightening to me that such a thing could happen in an otherwise strong congregation. I mean, lots of people probably wanted to go to St. Jezebel's Church or what's happening now. You know, where you go to church and you believe what you want to believe and do what you want to do. But let's understand here the fourth thing. God judges evil in the church. He says here, I've given her time to repent. That's an interesting phrase. Now, he may mean that the church leaders actually went and confronted this woman, and she refused to repent. And now, while it's true that the patience of God is meant to lead us to repentance, let's also remember that God's patience has a limit. You see, friends, if we persist in sin, judgment day is still coming down the road. Now, the one piece of good news is that Jezebel is beyond redemption. Her followers, though, are not. And in this case, judgment is spelled out. He says you cannot continue in sexual sin forever without facing the judgment of God. Did you catch the judgment? It said, first of all, in verse 22, there will be intense suffering. Verse 23, her followers will die. Third, all churches will know that God is serious about sin in the church. These kind of words are, are not to be watered down. I mean, that's why I'd be very bold to say, let, let people who promote free sex or casual sex or hooking up or sleeping around or premarital sex or fornication or filthy talk or child pornography or prostitution or adultery or sexual experimentation or homosexuality or bisexuality or any other form of sexual sin you can come up with, you need to hear this message from heaven Be sure that your sin will find you out. That's the message from heaven. What you do in secret will be shouted from the housetops. What you do in darkness, he says, will be seen in the light of day. And don't fool yourself about God's judgment. And yet, Jesus does what? He encourages his faithful followers. He said, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to those of you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you already have. Now, I love this little so-called 
deep secrets. It gives us a clue to what's going on. Jezebel, whoever this woman was, had obviously enticed her followers by promising them some knowledge or experience that came through some combination of pagan ritual plus Christian symbolism plus sexual experimentation, all under the banner of deep secrets. Let me tell you how to spot a false prophet. And believe me, if you watch television long enough, listen to them on the radio long enough, sit in the church with them long enough, you can spot them. False prophets love deep secrets. And so do you. There isn't a single one of you here today who does not love it when somebody says, let me tell you a secret. You're right there. In fact, some of you beg for it. Tell me what you know. I haven't seen you for a while. Share the gossip with me. I want to know the deep secrets. See, when you cloak the deep secrets with a veneer of religiosity, it becomes even more attractive. I mean, why be stuck with the Bible when you can enter into a whole new world of direct messages and signs and prophecies that give insight into the hidden world that regular Christians don't have? That'd be like saying, John, I know something you don't know. I know something you don't know. John, tell me, tell me. No, John, it's for those of us who really know Jesus. Ah. Now, I want you to notice here that Jesus doesn't tell them to toss this woman out of the church on her ear. Evidently, she is so embedded in this church that Jesus actually says, don't worry about her, I'll take care of her myself. And it's obvious it comes in some form of a physical judgment leading to her death and the death of her followers. And if you don't believe that the death of some of the followers of Satan don't happen, some of you, go back and read the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, who lied about their church offerings. That's a great stewardship message. Remember people who got drunk during the communion services, who also died because of it. That's why Jesus has only really one command to all of his followers. It's this. Hold on. Hold on. Don't join these false prophets. Be wary of these prophets and prophetesses. These people who have these secret things. And sometimes godliness is is measured mostly by holding on when it would be a whole lot easier to give up and give in. But see, there's another promise, and that's that Jesus promises to share his victory with us. He says here, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I'll give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He'll dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I've received authority from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. You see, friends, the people who remain faithful to the Lord will one day reign with the Lord. That's one of his promises. We're going to share in his victory someday. And we're going to know him deeply and personally. If you were here last week, remember that that white stone that had a name on it, that has your name on it, that is only known to him? I mean, that deep personal relationship. And we're going to know him for being the true morning star, 
that just lights up the heavens. Now, before I close, I, I, I want to consider very briefly some implications of this passage for us, for today. I don't think there's a single person here this morning who would dispute the fact that we live in a sex-saturated society. In fact, we glorify sex so much and talk about sex so much that quite honestly it's boring. But rampant sex is only a symptom of a much deeper societal problem. And the problem is this, we have a lot of people in this world, in our society, who are starving, starving on the inside. And a starving man will eat almost anything you put in front of him. And he will even go so far as to eat food that will ultimately kill him in the end. Now answer this question for me. Why is pornography such big business on the Internet? called supply and demand. That's the answer. People make billions and billions of dollars off pornography. Why? Because it offers a temporary fix for an inner emptiness that they cannot satisfy any other way. But this is going to sound kind of odd. When it comes to sexual matters, less is more. Let me say that again. When it comes to sexual matters, less is more. When it comes to love, it's less experience that's more desirable. Now, if I were speaking to a whole lot of young people, this is what I'd say. How romantic, young people, would you think it would be? I mean, if you're not married, how romantic do you think it would be if somebody said to you, I know so much about sex, let me show you all the cool stuff I've learned. See, that's one area where growing, going pro is not a plus. It's far ro more romantic, I would suggest to you, to be a stumbling, bumbling amateur when it comes to the matters of love. And even though a lot of people have tried for all the history of this world, no one, absolutely no one has ever improved on God's plan for sexual happiness. You know what that plan is? I kind of talked about it at the wedding the other day. One man with one woman. Remember, it's not he created Adam. He created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. One man with one woman, faithful to each other for a lifetime. That's God's plan. But there is always a Jezebel sitting out there. The Jezebel who's willing to listen to you. Let you talk about your problems, offer cheap and easy and quick satisfaction, if necessary, maybe even quote a couple of scripture passages, but watch out for Jezebel, or we might say, and watch out for Ahab, the other side, because she'll eventually take your body and soul and lead you straight to hell. That's why you need to hear and that you need to stand up and be able to say to people, there is no such thing as casual sex. There is no such thing as a guilt-free one-night stand. 
But friends, don't miss the main point here. God takes sexual sin very seriously. He judges people who practice it, who promote it, who tolerate it, who laugh at it, who make light of it. Now, I also know, and Jimmy's probably happy I'm not gone this week. He had to give this message, too. This is not a popular message in today's society. But I need to tell you something, friends. As long as I'm going to be here, I'm not going to mince words with you. I want to preach from the Bible. We need to keep the lines very sharp and very clear between the church and the world in the realm of such things as sexual ethics. I mean, let the world go do what the world wants to do. I mean, left to itself, the world will always choose the path of least resistance and the path of self-indulgence. The church's job, the pastor's job, this church's job, the church in the world, their job is to shine the pure light of God's truth in the midst of darkness. See, if the church lives like the world, why on earth would anybody ever be interested in coming to church? If we're no different than the other people who live on the streets of Texarkana, why would they want to come and join us? See, any church that makes it easy to sin or redefines sin or any doctrine that makes sin any less than sin, that stuff comes straight from hell. Now, what do we say to people who have made repeated mistakes in this area? I don't want anybody to think you're going to get beat up and left out there. What do you say to somebody who's made a lot of mistakes? I don't care whether it's sexual sin or whatever it is. Is there grace for them as well? Yeah. I mean, could Jezebel have found forgiveness? Well, yes, but we're not really left really to wonder about it because Jesus said, I gave her time, but she was unwilling. She had an opportunity. Evidently, she liked her life of sex plus idolatry more than she liked the hard work of repentance. She had her chance, but she was unwilling to repent, so there was nothing left for her but the judgment. But, here comes the good but, we find in that Solomon's, solemn statement the hope of the gospel. And what is the hope of the gospel? If you are willing, you can be changed. If you're willing, you can be made clean. If you are willing, you can have a brand new start. If you're willing, your sins can be completely washed away. Every last person here, all the way from Heidi, all the way back to Wayne, all of us, are all saved by the free grace of God. And the people who've been scarred by, you know, wrong choices in the past, if you're willing, guess what? You can be forgiven. You can be made clean. I mean, you may still live with certain consequences of your sin, but you can have the burden of that sin removed from your heart. I love 2 Corinthians where it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Isn't that great? You're a new creation. The old one is gone. The brand new one has come. I mean, think of it this way, friends. You can either have Jesus or Jezebel. But you can't have them both. Which do you want? 
you can have the cheap thrills of the world and feel sick to your stomach the next morning when you look at yourself in the mirror. Or you can have Jesus. A new life now. Forgiveness now. Real pleasure now. And when you wake up in the morning, either here on earth or in heaven, you rise to shine like that morning star who sent his son to save you. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's stand and join together.